program that we leave with is the, the rabbi of the base Knesset of North Wuzmir, a yes. former um, master educator in, in DRS High School and at Nander College for Men, and now is the director of Smitha in NYU and Reeds, and uh, a ready to men. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you, Rabbi Javahari. It's, uh, it's always such a great pleasure to be here and to, uh, to see so many, so many friends and so many people who are spending so much time learning and growing. And uh, this particular community is just so inspiring. I was able to meet just now with some of the young rabbinic leadership, and it's really uh, extremely impressive, uh, the, the, the level of growth, uh, the level of yearning for more, for more Torah, for deeper Torah uh, is, uh, is, is really uh, something special. You should appreciate it. I'm sure you do appreciate what you have here. You should continue to appreciate it. Um, what I would like to share with you are uh, three questions that came up recently, three shilas that uh, people asked me recently. Um, you know, whenever I, I give the shir, uh, the From the Rabbi's Desk uh, shir, which is basically just whatever questions people have asked me recently. So I'm never sure if it's going to be good or not because it really depends on how good the questions are. You know, then again, it's just, it's just the questions that came up in the last few days. It happens to be I got a little bit of a kiss from Hashem last night. Uh, I was at a wedding last night, and on the way into the wedding, I got a uh, text from, from a Talmud of mine um, uh, relating to how Ashkenazim live in the Sephardi world, um, or, and vice versa. And then on the way out of the wedding, I was, on, I was only at the wedding for about an hour, on the way out of the wedding, I got another text from the Talmud also relating to the interval. So like the night before I come to Great Neck, you know, I get two Sephardic, Ashkenazic, you know, interplay uh, kinds of shailas. We'll see if that's what you actually want to talk about. And then I'll go with the third shaila as well. So the shaila on the way into the wedding was as follows. Uh, an Ashkenazi young man is dating a Sephardic young woman. It's known to happen sometimes, right? So he's eager to make a positive impression on her parents. Her parents are a little bit skeptical about being able to bridge the cultural divide. Yeah, you know, he, he was not everything they had always dreamed their daughter would come home with or whatever. So uh, he's eating at her house for the first time. She's going to show her parents that he's really wonderful and he is a wonderful guy and that... And they served uh, a, a meat meal, fleshig meal, and uh, he noticed that he was served a hot piece of meat on a glass plate. Now, a hot piece of meat on a glass plate, and he's a Talmud Chacham. So right away he realized that he might have a problem. Why, what's his problem? I know some of you immediately, rabbinic leadership immediately knows. What's about. So Sephardim and Ashkenazim have a different attitude toward how we use glass. Are you familiar with this? Yeah, so Ashkenazim hold that you're not allowed to use glass for hot meat and hot dairy, uh, the same plates for hot meat and hot dairy, the same uh, glass dishes for, for meat and dairy. Svardim hold that you are allowed to. So here he is, an Ashkenazi guy, trying to impress the in-laws. They serve on a glass plate. Probably it's their only set of plates, right? Meaning probably that's also what they serve their dairy meals on those, uh, on those same plates. Now he wants to know, am I allowed to eat anything? Uh, it's not going to go well if, uh, if, if, if he says that he can't eat anything. So that is Shaila number one. Now, on the way out of the wedding last night, I got the following Shaila. I have a Talmud from many years ago. 
who is a uh, Sephardic Talmud, uh, grew up here in Great Neck actually, um, and he's married to a girl who grew up in a Yeki family, German Jewish family. I don't know like how they arrange timing of things, you know, like you know, <laughs> she has to tell him that things are like 24 hours earlier than they are. I don't know later that whatever. I don't, I'm not sure exactly how they uh, how they do that. But, uh, but he writes to me as follows. He writes, Hi, Rabbi, I'm a big talker. I was 15 minutes late tonight. But okay. So, uh, so he says, Hi, Rabbi Leibowitz. Hope all is well. I have a quick shayla. My wife is severely anemic. You know what anemic is? I didn't either. But it, it, it means that you need iron, that uh, you need more iron in your diet. So it's not as bad as it sounds. Meaning that's, so she is uh, severely anemic. She needs to get iron infusions to supplement. As silly as it may sound, she rarely eats meat, which would help with the iron deficiency, meaning having meat is uh, a good source of iron, due to my minhag to wait six hours. He's a Sephardic guy, he waits six hours. Is it between meat and dairy? Is there any leniency for her to wait less than six? If she would eat more meat, it most likely wouldn't entirely solve the anemia. She's not likely to start devouring steaks, but it would definitely help somewhat and likely limit the necessity for the occasional infusion. Meaning, this is another Ashkenazi Sephardi divide. She's from Ashkenaz, Ashkenaz, meaning uh, Germany is, is what Ashkenaz really is, right? And the, the minute of Germans, German Jews is to wait how long between meat and dairy? Three hours. So now she had to adjust to six hours, but she has a health consideration. So what she has to think about over here is, first of all, uh, would, would a Sephardi woman be allowed to, uh, to cut down on the six hours in order to for, for health considerations. And you know, another angle is how important is it that she accepts all of her husband's minhagin? Can she continue to keep her own minhagin? I was in Masada Kiddushin uh, a couple of times recently where a Sephardi boy married an Ashkenazi girl and uh, they, they always wanted to meet beforehand and she's like, I just can't change the way I daven like that, you know, to, to change my whole sidur and to, to have everything. It's just so hard. There's so many different things that, 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 that all have to change at once. So very often the, uh, there are many, uh, you know, uh, young women that continue to, to, to pray the way they always pray. They continue to, until eventually when they start raising children, they, they eventually switch over. Once they, uh, they realize that it's a nicer way to pray. When you, when you pray. I was at a wedding two nights ago. We was, uh, it was a Sephardi boy marrying an Ashkenazi girl and uh, they dab mincha uh, at the uh, you know before the chuppah and uh, like all the people from my shul were like why don't we do this why don't we like it's uh, you know all the words are being said and you know like, it's like such a nice way to to daven you know it seems so much so much better um, the uh, although I could do with the shorter ksuba I'll tell you but but okay that's uh, so the uh, a third shaila came up a third shaila this has nothing to do with Swati Ashkenazi this nothing to, didn't come up last night came up a little while ago uh, about a couple of weeks ago a rav in Florida texted the following he said that someone had just asked him uh, a woman had given birth and she was in the hospital and they served her her kosher meal. You know, when they serve a kosher meal in the hospital, it's like wrapped in like, you know, like tape and a thousand different things. And next to the kosher meal, they also gave her a thing of uh, chicken soup. And uh, she assumed that the chicken soup came along with the kosher meal. Curiously, the chicken soup didn't have wrapping and tape and everything else. It was just a bowl of chicken soup. It was a little plastic container of chicken soup. And she had just had a baby and she wasn't feeling like she wanted, you know, the hospital food, but the chicken soup looked okay. So she ate the chicken soup. 
And she only discovered afterwards why didn't the chicken soup have wrapping and because it wasn't kosher, meaning uh, it wasn't really part of the kosher meal. So she had eaten, and you know, like I, I, you know, when I when I was asking some people this question, I said, uh, young woman who ate something not kosher right after having a baby, they said, come on, you know, how not kosher? What was it? Like a bagel? I'm sure it was kosher. It just maybe didn't have certification. No, no, this was chicken soup, right? I mean, this is like as trafe as trafe can get. I Meaning, this is absolutely, absolutely not kosher. So, what's her shayla? She already ate it. So. What? Bracha No, she already uh, did or didn't. I don't know. This was after. Ah, breastfeeding. Her shayla was she let it feed her baby because uh, it could be, it could be that there's such a, an, an idea. That if a person has eaten non-kosher food, that they're not that the uh, that it goes through to the to the to the baby. So her shaila is she allowed to feed her baby for the next, and if and if not, for how long? How long does she have to wait before she starts feeding starts feeding her baby? So six hours. <laughs> I don't know if we have the same six hour uh, six hour differentiation. Okay, so those are our three shailas. Um Okay, so number one, we have glass by the Sephardic in- glass plates by the Sephardic in-laws. Number two, we have wife waiting less time after meat, the anemic wife. And uh, number three, nursing after eating non-kosher food. So we'll do this by a vote. We're going to talk about one of these. We're not going to talk about all three. We'll do by a vote which one of them uh, you'd like to talk about. So like, have in mind which one you want to vote for because like, it's always awkward if only two people vote. So like, have in mind which one uh, you'd like to vote for. All those who would like to talk about uh, eating on a glass plate by the Sephardic in-laws. That's a good number. Okay, all those who want to talk about wife waiting less, the anemic wife? Not so many. Okay, we'll put that one away. And nursing after eating non-kosher? Looks like the first one wins. Yeah? Looks like the first one wins. Okay. Um, The chumr about nursing after eating non-kosher is an Ashkenazi thing anyway. It's a Ramah. So... Although there is a beautiful Musa that they say, right? That uh, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky has a beautiful, uh, a beautiful idea. Well, maybe we'll share that idea and then we'll, uh, we'll move on to the, to the question about the glass. Um, the, uh, the basis for the idea that, uh, that, that, that you're not supposed to have a non-Jewish woman uh, nurse a baby when you hire a wet nurse, it shouldn't be a non-Jewish woman. Um, the Vilna Gon points out in the bottom of the Shulchan Aruch that it's based on, uh, on, on Rashi and Chumash about Moshe Rabbeinu, that Moshe Rabbeinu refused to nurse from any of the Mitzrios, from any of the Egyptian women. He only wanted to nurse from, uh, from a Jewish woman. And Rashi says, because Pesha, Asla, the mouth that's one day going to speak to the Shechina, would be terrible. That same mouth would be, uh, would be nursing from a non-Jewish woman. So Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky points out what does it have to do with everybody else's baby? There's only one pesh, that was Moshe Rabbeinu. None of us are Moshe Rabbeinu, so we don't have to worry about that. So Rabbi Yaakov writes in Emes Yaakov that that's the, uh, the idea, that when one is raising a child, one should raise their child as if, as if they could be the pesh, as if uh, they should raise a child with such kedusha and such tahara as if they could be the, the one. And you never know, never know. Uh, a lot of times, some of the greatest Jewish leaders and the greatest rabbis have come from families where you would not have expected the greatest Jewish leaders and rabbis. Sometimes, yes. Sometimes it's clearly uh, you know, uh, hereditary, but sometimes not. 
Sometimes it comes from places very far away. Every parent should raise their child on such a level of kedusha. Okay, so with that thought, let's get right into the uh, to the glass uh, question. So first of all, what's the issue? Why would Ashkenazim be so uh, strict about this that we don't use the same glass plates for uh, or what do they call those dishes that you cook in? The Pyrex, right? The Pyrex dishes that uh, oven to table, right? You take them right, right out of the oven and you bring it to the table. Why can't I make like a uh, a cheese? Uh, a lasagna or whatever, or a pasta or something, and also make a meatloaf or whatever. I don't know, I'm not good at coming up with foods, but you know, or also some sort of uh, some sort of meat dish in the same in the same thing. And why? And why? Yes, for Sephardim, that doesn't seem like something that should be a split between Ashkenazim and Sephardim. What's what's the basis of the of the issue? So before we can even like discuss the basis of the issue, we need to understand the mitzvahs. Like, what is glass? How is glass made? And uh, what are its characteristics? What are its uh, what are its qualities? You know. Salvechik, Zichron Levracha, had uh, two brothers. Uh, one was Ravaran Salvechik, who was a Rashiva in the Yeshiva also in, in YU. He was a Rashiva in Chicago, in Brisk, Chicago, and he was a Rashiva in, in, in Yeshiva University as well. He's a very famous rabbi also. Ravaran Salvechik was his youngest brother. And then he had another brother, Dr. Shmuel Salvechik. Uh, Dr. Shmuel Salvechik was a chemistry professor in Yeshiva. Um, and uh, he would teach like uh, you know, they, they have like chemistry for majors and chemistry for non-majors. You know, chemistry for non-majors we would call, anyone know the terminology? Chemistry for idiots, right? No, isn't that what we would say? So chemistry for poets or for idiots, right? Whatever it is. So uh, so he would teach like the chemistry for idiots, right? He would, uh, so he was, uh, but he was a brilliant guy and he was, uh, and he was a professor in the yeshiva. So uh, he was very interested in the chemistry of things and how it, it impacted halacha. He was very interested in science in general and how it impacted halacha. My father-in-law told me that he had a lot to say about glass and uh, how the Svartim were obviously correct about glass and that the Ashkenazi were shown him, they just didn't know. They didn't know what glass was. They just didn't know uh, the metzius of, uh, of glass. And then if you're familiar with the metzius, you know that the, uh, that the Svartim are correct. My father-in-law told me when he was in Dr. Salvechik's class, so, um, anyone here ever heard a recording of Rav Salvechik speaking? By show of hands, anyone? It's like a heavy Russian accent, right? So, uh, the boys, as boys do sometimes, everyone had, anyone here go to Yeshivat Nativarye? How many of you do not have an imitation of Rabina that you could do, like, like in the snap of the finger? Come on, yes you do. Like, you could do it in the... <laughs> so, meaning, that sometimes, like, boys pick on idiosyncrasies of the way that a Rebbe speaks, and they're always, you know, they always... So, they, my father-in-law told me they were, they were in their chemistry class waiting for the professor to arrive, and they were all imitating the professor, Dr. Shmuel Salavechik, you know, in his Russian accent. And he walked in and he heard them. And he said, Ah, chutzpah! How can you make fun of the Gadol Adar, my brother, like that? <laughs> You're gonna, like it didn't even dawn on him they were making fun of him. You know? <laughs> but, uh, but, but, uh, so what exactly is, what exactly is the, uh, the Metzius of glass? So basically, the raw ingredients are, are heated and melted in this very large furnace, and then the molten glass is shaped and it's blown or pressed into uh, a particular shape, and the finished product is then put it in a different type of oven and tempered to give it a, a strength and a durability. So uh, they, they, it could be made to be stronger and less porous than steel. Um, but uh, uh, the, the issue that it boils down to is on the one hand, uh, glass is not porous. What is not porous? I mean, there are no, nothing gets in. It's not balea anything. There are no absorptions in glass. It's completely smooth. Nothing gets into glass. Uh, on the other hand, 
glass's raw materials are the same as earthenware. So it's made out of sand. It's made out of raw materials that are very... Uh, and and earthen, earthenware kalim are very porous, and they're extremely absorbent, and they, and, and they therefore can't be kashered. So the background is like this. When you have something, why do you ever have to kosher anything? Why can't I use the same uh, forks for, for meat and dairy? Why can't I use the same pots for meat and dairy? So the I'll clean it. I promise I'll clean it. I'll put it through the dishwasher. You won't see any meat in my chicken soup pot when I make my penny olive vodka. I don't know, when I make my, uh, my, my macaroni and cheese in that same pot, you won't see any meat, any meat in that pot. So what's the problem? The problem is that we assume that the pot absorbs some of the flavor of the meat. But that's only if, there's, if it's somewhat porous, if it could absorb something. But if it can't absorb anything, so I don't have anything to worry about. As long as it's clean, it's clean, and I'm fine. So the mitzius of glass is that it's, if it's clean, it's clean, and there's nothing absorbed in the glass. But there were Ashkenazi poskim that said that, no, that it's a problem, because it's made out of sand, and just like when you make pottery out of, out of earth, uh, the pottery, like a, a mug or something like that. You ever do pottery making? Anyone ever dated? No? Isn't that a thing? Like you go to make pottery? No, that's not... Okay, I don't know. But uh, it's not a date place? No, am I wrong about that? It is. Come on, you've all done it. You painted the pottery. So if you make pottery, pottery is very absorbent. It, uh, it very much absorbs uh, flavor. And it's so much so that pottery is even more strict than meat, than, than metal. Metal absorbs flavor, but you can extract the flavor. How do you extract the flavor from metal? However it went in, that's how it's going to come out, right? That's how the flavor comes out of the metal. So if it went in with direct fire, it could come out with direct fire. If you want to kosher a grill, a barbecue grill, so what do you do? You just burn it till it's red hot. It's very hard to do, actually. So, uh, but you, you just burn it till it's red hot. If it absorbed through a liquid medium, so you kosher it through a liquid medium, what we call hagala, with, uh, with boiling water. So metal, you could do that with. Pottery, we assume, is so absorbent that there's no way to ever get the flavor out of it. There's nothing you could do to it short of breaking it and destroying it that you'll ever be able to draw the flavor out of it. So glass, there are three possibilities of how to treat glass. Some poskums say that glass is smooth, it cannot absorb anything, and therefore it doesn't need to be kashered, and you could use the same hot glass to make, uh, the same glass to make hot meat, and the same glass to make hot, hot dairy, and it's perfectly fine. Other poskums say that no, glass is like metal, that kibolo, uh, kachpolto, the same way it goes in, that's the same way it comes out, that it has the same uh, qualities like metal. And other posts can say, no, glass is worse than metal. It's like cheres, it's like earthenware. And as earthenware, it can never be kashered. So if you used it once for meat, that's it. It's meat. It can never be, uh, can never be used for dairy. Now, I'll, I'll tell you that even Ashkenazim... Well, let's first get to what we posken. So in Shulchan Aruch, uh, the Shulchan Aruch, where do we talk about kashur and kalim? What section of Shulchan Aruch do we talk about kashur and kalim? So you'd expect it to be in Yeridea, where we talk about kashras. And it is a little bit, very little bit, in, in Yeridea. The, the big, big discussion of Hava Kashra Kalim is in Hilchas Pesach. Because it used to be that's the only time anyone ever really kashred Kalim. Like, how often did you buy a Kli from a non-Jew, from someone who was keeping not kosher? But uh, we weren't always so rich. The Jewish people were not always so rich to be able to afford multiple sets of dishes. 
dairy and meat and dairy Pesach and meat Pesach and Pariv and you know like uh, how many shilas I get I did this with my Pariv knife so first thing I know is it's kosher right whatever you did with your Pariv knife nothing happened to it right uh, because you know if you hit you know you used a meat knife for dairy or dairy knife for meat then you could have done something that uh, that impacted it but but people couldn't always afford so many sets of dishes so they always koshered right before Pesach nowadays when we talk about koshering for Pesach most people, what are they kashering? Their countertops, their ovens, their sinks. Very few people are actually kashering pots and, and, and forks and knives and things. But that's what it always was. That's where kashering always was. So Shulchan Aruch Pesach writes as follows. Klei zechuches, glass kalim. Afilu machnison lakiyim, afilu mishtamishven b'chamim, ein srichin shum hechsher. They don't require any action. Sheinambolim ubeshtifa beyond the sagilu. All you need to do is rinse them out. They don't absorb any flavor. Comes along the Rama, fresh Kenazi juice, and says, "V'yesh machmirin va'omrim v'kleizuchuches afilu agalo lomahani luchu, lomahani luchu v'chena minag." He said, "V'chena minag bashkenaz lumdino selu." That fresh Kenazim, there is no way to kasher it. Not a, so for Sfardim, it can't become treif. For Ashkenazim, not only can it become treif, it can never be kashered once it becomes treif. There's no way to fix it. So, minakotza from one extreme to the uh, to, to the other. Uh, this is, uh, you know, often uh, the Ramah is often a little more machmir than uh, than the mechaber is, but over here it's like uh, much more machmir than the mechaber is. So, n- n- where are we right now? Let's go back to our shaila. This young man is an Ashkenazi fellow. He's eating by the prospective in-laws. They're serving him on a glass plate. He's pretty certain that the glass plate they're serving him on is used for hot meat and hot dairy. So can he eat off? At this point, or not, right? He's got a problem. He's going to have to come up with some, you know, some excuse as to how he's allergic to hot food or something. I don't know. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna need, he's gonna need some help. Um, what? Oh, so can you ask that that question? Um, it's you know he's he's nervous about asking any questions. So I don't know that he wants to ask that question. Uh, let's let's even assume let's say let's say he knows it's used for dairy. Okay, let's even work with that assumption. Yeah. What's that? Ah, so the first uh, the first the first uh, weakness in the in the minagashkenas. Yesh machmirin va'omrin. There are some that are machmir, but he says v'chein haminag ba'ashkenaz v'medina seilu. That that's what we recommend, right? That's what we recommend to be machmir. So for Ashkenazim, we recommend being machmir. So let's try to chip away at this and see if there's room to be makil. There is a sefer called Zera Ms, which was written by Rabbi Shmuel Cohen uh, in the 1700s, 18th century uh, scholar, and he says that even Ashkenazim could use the same dish for meat and milk. What do you mean? The same glass dish for meat and milk. It stems from the fact that the Shulchan Aruch and Simon Kuflam and Hay, Paskins, that you could use a glass clay where you stored Yayin Nesach. Now Yayin Nesach is Asr. What's Yayin Nesach? Or Stam wine of of Anachri. Why does wine need a Heksher? All wine is just pressed grapes. All the ingredients are kosher. So the main reason wine needs a hechsher is because if non-Jews handled it or touched it or poured it or made it, so you have a real problem. Even if non-religious Jews, so you have a, you have a, you have a real problem. So it has to have a hechsher to make sure that it was that it was handled properly. So yain is really not kosher. 
So what if you have glasses that Yayin Nesach was stored in for a long period of time? So Shulchan says you could use those glasses. And the Ramah over there, you expect the Ramah to start jumping up and down and saying, No, that's only for the Svaradim, it's not for the Ashkenazim, Ashkenazim can't, Yesh Machmirin, Minag Ashkenaz, this and that. The Ramah doesn't say a word, he just lets that one go. Oh, the glasses for Yayin Okay, no problem. So, says the Zera Emes, it must be that the Ramah was only Machmir to say that glass has the status of pottery in Hilchus Pesach. Meaning this whole idea that we have to Yesh Machmirin the Ramah only mentioned it in Hilchus Pesach. He did not mention it in Yerodeh in Hilchus Kashrus. Why not? Why not? So it could be, we know that when it comes to Pesach, we have something called Chumr Dechamets, that we're very often more machmir about Pesach than we are about things the rest of the year. Right? People uh, kasher things that they wouldn't normally kasher the rest of the year. They, uh, they were just very, very strict about, about Pesach. And that's based on the Torah. The Torah itself is very strict about Pesach. The Torah itself has, uh, tells us that we have an Israel to not only eat chametz, but an Israel to own chametz. Not only an Israel to own chametz, but an Israel to get from chametz. We have all of these extra chumras of chametz. So says the Zara Emes, maybe this whole thing about being machmir about glass, that's only when it's a Pesach issue. But outside of chametz, it's not a problem at all. That's 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 one. If we if we pass like that zara emes, so this guy's home free, right? Problem is, I think most Ashkenazi poskim do not pass like that zara emes, so he's not home free, right? So we need something else. We need something else. It happens to be that Ashkenazim do use the same drinking glasses for for meat and dairy. That's always been the minhag of Ashkenazim. Same drinking glasses for me. Why do we? How do we allow that? So do you enjoy um, uh, hot uh, dairy drinks? Sometimes hot coffee, right, with milk in it. Yeah. Hot meat drinks? I never even heard of one. Right? It's, it's like you, you wouldn't have it. Like, is there is there such a thing? All right, next uh, restaurant that opens up, that'll be their shtick. They'll serve some sort of hot meat drink. But uh, right, it doesn't, it doesn't even exist. There's no such there's no such thing. So for drinking glasses, we, we tend to be much more lenient. There's a tshuva sefer called uh, Mishnah Halachas, Rav Menashe Klein, who was uh, known as the Ungvar Rav. He was a Holocaust survivor. And he writes uh, that Af HaMachmirim Bekleizuchuches Davkali and then he says that uh, he, he says like the Zerah Emes that we were only machmir for chametz bePesach, and then he says obviously not to use the same glass to cook things in, but the same drinking glasses are perfectly fine. Um, there's even uh, Rabbi Yaakov Emden holds that glazed china is not balea. Whoa, this could be a, a big help for people. Let's imagine it's not a Sfardi Ashkenazi thing. You're dating a girl. She comes from a non-religious family. A family that's not Shomer Kashrut yet, right? Or they're just learning how, and they haven't yet bought two sets of dishes, and they have china dishes. And it's one set, no dairy and meat. They never bring anything non-kosher into the house, but their dishes are all trafe. And they serve you on a, on, on a plate. So what do you do? So is there any hatter? If it's mamish cheres, it's a, it's, a, it's a piece of pottery, it's a, right, a regular dish, it's pottery, china. So is there any hatter? So Rabbi Yaakov Emden held that if there's a glaze over the china that has a din of glass, and it's therefore not palea anything, and therefore it can't become trade. Wow. Now, we don't pass it like that, Rabbi Yaakov Emden. But there, was, there were some postcom that do. 
Um, there was a great posek in uh, Brooklyn, I think, many years ago, Rav Bick, who used to pass like Rabbi Yaakov. And then Rabbi Reisman told us, when I brought my Talmudim to Torah Vedasis, he had to meet Rabbi Reisman, he told us that one time a, uh, a young chassan had just gotten married, came to Rav Palm, and he said, Rabbi, my wife was serving dinner, and she, we got this beautiful serving plate um, that's dairy, and she put a hot piece of chicken directly on the dairy serving plate, you know, cheres, China serving plate. And Rav Palm said, it's a really hard shayla. Let me think. And he said, wait, your, your parents davened by Rav Bik, right? And he said, yeah. He said, I think you should ask Rav Bik the shayla. It's a very hard shayla. So uh, after the guy left, Rabbi Reisman says, Rav Palm, that's like the easiest shayla in the whole entire world, meaning hot meat on a dairy dish. <laughs> it's trafe. And it's charis. There's nothing you can do with it. you got to throw out the plate. He said, yeah, that's what I hold. That's what everyone holds, except Rav Bik is a, grandson, a descendant of Rav Yaakov Emden. And Rav Yaakov Emden holds that if there's a glaze on it, then it's not a problem because it's glass. And look, if this person had no connection to Rav Bik, I wouldn't have sent him to Rav Bik. But to tell a young Kala that she's going to have that the first time she's cooking dinner, she's going to have to, you know, she messed up badly enough that she's going to have to throw out, you know, this expensive serving dish that they, uh, that they got. So, uh, you know, so, so I'm, not, uh, I'm not willing to, to do that if they have a connection to Rav Bik. So he sent, he sent him to Rav Bik. So anyway, but, but uh, th- there is another, another uh, important, um, important consideration over here. And that is, so again, where are we now? So this Ashkenazi guy wants to eat at the Sardi house. And where, where are we right now? Is he allowed to? Is he allowed to eat on the, on the glass plate? So we started by saying, no way. And then we said, eh, maybe it's only a Pesach thing. So that's our first, uh, right? Maybe it's only a Pesach hurma. There's another, another important matter. In Hilchus Kashrus, uh, a, a flavor is only, only transfers from one item to the next if it's in a Kli Rishon. If it's in uh, the kli that it was cooked in, in the item that it was actually cooked in, once it's a klisheni, we're familiar with kli rishon, klisheni from milcha shabbos. But the same is true in milchas kashros that it's not going to be balea; it's not going to uh, absorb into the other into the other kli if there's uh, if it's only in the klisheni, if it's not in the kli that it was originally cooked in. So plates, dinner plates, are a kli rishon or a klisheni? Klisheni. And maybe even a klishlishi, right? The food goes into a serving plate and then it goes on to the dinner plate. So the chances that this has any blios whatsoever are very slim. Maybe there are no blios whatsoever. So then why are we also machmir? Shouldn't we all just have one set of china plates and not have to worry about anything? After all, they're all a klisheni. Why do we, I would bet that all of you have two sets of dishes in your house. Why do you have to, assuming that they're not glass, why do you have two sets of dishes? You shouldn't need to have two sets of dishes, right? So what, what, what's the answer? You have two sets of dishes because we assume that that it does absorb. Why are we assuming it absorbs? It's only a cliche. Because that the 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 chumrah that we observe is that a dover gush, something that's a solid piece of food, doesn't go down in level when you move it from one cle to another. That's what's the whole svar of the cliche? Is that when you pour a hot liquid into a cold cle, it spreads out throughout the cle, and the dofne cle, the walls of the cle, cool down that hot liquid. But you take a hot piece of something and you slap it down on a plate, and it's not taking the shape of the plate, so then it stays hot enough that it's still a cle rishon, even as it's in a cliche and a cliche, it still has the status of a cle rishon. That's what we're machmi for, but let's. Let's be honest, that's a chumrah. The Taz quotes a marshal, and we're all machmir that way, but it's only a chumrah. 
And if it's only a chumra, we don't have to be, maybe there's room to be mekel in uh, Shas Chak. So I, I found that uh, Rav Aviner has a tshuva about this very issue of the Svari, uh, the, the Ashkenazi guy eating by the Svaradim. And he writes, if most of the time when you use this plate, it's used for cold anyway. It's mutter. Because uh, he, he brings in another factor that when it comes to kashering, we don't look at the most intense heat it was ever used with. We look at what it's usually used for. And if usually it's used for things that aren't so hot, so then it probably doesn't need hechsher anyway. Plus, you have the idea that it could be uh, that, that, that maybe clay zuchuchis, maybe glass doesn't require kashering anyway. Plus, you have the idea that maybe it's only chumra and hilchus pesach. And when you put all of these different things together, plus it's only a cliche, it's not a cliche show. And when you put all of those things together, But then he adds, <laughs> Make sure that uh, if it's Pesach, don't eat kitniot. The Ashkenazi should not have the fruity pebbles on, uh, on Pesach when he's eating by the, uh, by, by, by the, uh, by the Sephardim. Um, I remember I was once, you know, this cliche and cliche thing, um, it, it, what comes to mind is I was once, um, when I was teaching in DRS, uh, there was a hurricane that happened in the community, Hurricane Sandy. Remember Hurricane Sandy? So it happened yes. in all of the uh, Long Island and it destroyed many, many uh, homes and whatever. So it destroyed the yeshiva also. I mean, the DRS was, uh, we had to be out of the building for, uh, for weeks. Um, they, there was no power and the whole, you know, 10 feet of water in the basement or something. It was like really bad. So, uh, so they, they felt that we needed, that the community needed chizik. So they brought in Rav Asher Weiss from Eretz Yisrael to come and give chizik to the community, uh, which was really nice, except it, it, it seemed a little bit silly because by the time he came in, there were also a, a spate of terror attacks that were going on in Israel. So we felt kind of stupid that, you know, Rav Asher Weiss is giving us chizik, you know, as we're collecting our insurance policy checks, you know, like, uh, like don't worry, have a muna, you know, like, uh, and meanwhile, you know, they're, they're suffering Nebuch terror attacks, and it's uh, like a little, uh, you know, puts things in perspective in terms of like what we were suffering versus what. But anyway, once he was there, one of the rabbeim in yeshiva had, uh, had just received a Yerusha from his grandmother, uh, a set of very expensive china from his grandmother. And he had no idea whether it was meat or dairy. Uh, so he didn't know what to do with it. So he asked Rav Asher Weiss um, if he's allowed to use it. And Rav Asher said, yeah, it's a cliché. Whatever it is, it's fine. Because it's only a cliché. Now normally we wouldn't be, I, I, I don't think I would be so, uh, so quick to be maker like that. But it just uh, drove home to me that really we're, we're, we're viewing a lot of the halacha with, with all the chumras that we've added on to the halacha. But sometimes when it comes to a shalom bayis situation, when it comes to these kinds of things, we have to be a little more sensitive to what the kulas might be. Now I'll close maybe with one story related to that. I don't have so many hechsher kalim stories because, I don't know, it's not a topic that lends itself to great stories. But you want to hear a great story that relates to hechsher kalim? This is like one great story that relates to hechsher kalim. We have a Rebbe in Yeshiva. Uh, I don't know too many people that are, you know, that, that match up in terms of tzitkos and just overall hanhagas hachayim to Rav Yaakov Neuberger. He's an incredible, incredible tzaddik. Uh, he tells the story that when he was a young rabbi, just starting out, 
um, he got a call from somebody that he did not know. And the person said, um, you know, I, I, the same child I just mentioned, Rav Ashwais, we, uh, we got a, uh, a family heirloom of very, very expensive china, and we got it from the grandmother, and it's, uh, it's not, grandmother didn't keep kosher, so we don't know what it is exactly, you know, so we, you know, is there any way we can keep, we can keep the china? So he thought to himself, it's very expensive, and it's a family heirloom. Rav Moshe Feinstein has a tshuva that you can combine three different things, three different shitos. There's one shita that holds that on China, um, you can do hagala gimel pa'amim, that doing, uh, dipping something in boiling water three times actually works for China. There's another shita that holds that, uh, which we don't pass in the that holds that after 12 months, after a year of no use, then all the bleos, whatever is absorbed, is gone. And put that together with the fact that it's Hefsin Maruba, that there's a major loss over here. I think you could be making just do Agala, dip it in hot water three times each dish, and you should be okay. So he said, okay. So that was the Psak. He gave them, he didn't know who he gave the Psak to. And the next day, he gets a phone call from another rabbi in the community. And the rabbi says, you know that family that you just gave the Psak to, that they could keep their china because it was a Hefsin Maruba, it was a major loss? He said, yeah. The rabbi said, they have two Mercedes parked in their driveway. You think this is such a major loss for them? Have you seen their house? Have you seen the kinds of cars that they drive? So they'll spend a couple of thousand dollars on different fancy china. I mean, this, uh, that, that, how do you call that Hefzim Ruba for a family like that? And Rabbi Nuberger, as a young rabbi, was very shaken up. He felt like, oh no, did I, did I really mess up over here? So the next day he went into yeshiva and he asked Rav Dov Lipschitz, who was still alive at the time, who was... Uh, one of the senior Rashi Shiva told him the story and he said, like, I feel terrible. Like, but Rav David said, no, you, you did the right thing. You made the right call. You're 100% correct. So he gave him a lot of chizik and he felt better about it, but you know, still gnawing in the back of his mind. He said 15 years later, he was at a wedding or a bar mitzvah or something, and a guy who he doesn't know comes over to him. Rav Neuberger said, a guy who doesn't know comes over to him and says, Rav Neuberger, I've been meaning to, to, to talk to you for the last 15 years. It's because of you that my family is religious today. It's because he brought over his kids. It's because of you that these children are in yeshiva. And he said, I, I don't think we've ever met. I don't, I don't know if I've ever made the pleasure of your company. Well, what are you talking about? He said, 15 years ago, I got really inspired. We, my wife and I were not religious. And I got really inspired. And I wanted to start keeping a kosher home. And uh, my wife was not on the same page as me. And I was trying to push her along, trying to get her to, and she said, I'll tell you what, you call a rabbi, if I can keep grandma's china, then I'm in. If I can't keep grandma's china, I'm out. And we called you, we didn't tell you what was riding on that decision, but we just asked the Shaila, and you told us we could keep grandma's china, and these kids are in yeshiva because of that. Sometimes, you know, being machmir and everything is not always the best approach. I was just talking to some of the young rabbis, and sometimes keeping the long game, you know, keeping uh, in, into account that there's a longer uh, perspective. And certainly when it comes to a young couple where they're trying to bridge a certain cultural uh, divide, uh, Ashkenazi, Sephardi cultural divide, so y y you have to keep the long relationship into account. And if there are kulas, 
you're going to need to find those 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 coolers. If there are leniencies, you're going to want to utilize uh, those those uh, those leniencies, especially especially in this case with the glass dishes, as Rashi often points out. The Sfarim were actually right about you know 100 right about this one. The Ashkenazim just got it wrong. We didn't know what glass was. So uh, so especially in that one where the mitzios is 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 like the mechaber and not like uh, not like the Ramah. So uh, okay, so that's what I think is the proper thing in that case. Everyone, thank you so much for coming to learn together this evening and have uh, have a wonderful night.